And we're back to conclude our study of the film that launched a thousand slashers, John Carpenter's 1978 classic, Halloween. Tonight you are listening to John Evans, Vikram Wheat, Luke Merrick, and hopefully Rich Eckersley. We've got a bunch of horror movie-loving dudes behind the microphones, ready to continue weighing Halloween's case as the greatest slasher movie ever made. Gentlemen, I think we should just hit the ground running tonight and let the shape lead us. So where did he leave off? Uh, I think he was tailing our lightly stoned Lori Strode and Annie as they drove to the neighborhood where Halloween night's babysitting gigs are going down. Uh, The sun has set, and it's the end of the world as they know it. Shit is about to get real. At a somewhat glacial pace. (laughs) Anyway, uh, Michael is casing the houses that the two girls go into, uh, one by one, from his car. And uh, this is the point, guys, where he gets out of his station wagon and never gets back in. Um, I was commenting last time, I think, a lot about how like the car is a big part of his M.O. This incarnation of Michael is just constantly using the car to stalk people. Um, but in this case, I don't think it's fair to draw any conclusions because we all know the geography of these two houses. They are so, so close. Even Michael cannot stalk you from the car when you put down roots a couple hundred feet away from where he parked. So at one point, he's literally stalking Lori via Tommy at the window from just outside the window of the other house, the one that Annie is in. So he can stalk Lori from Annie's location. That's just how close they are for, I don't know, even know if it's act three. I mean, I think it's actually almost the second half of the movie. I don't have the running time in front of me, but it's a pretty cool uh, cinematic dynamic for the movie to be playing with. And uh, let's check in with you first, Vic. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that? And and what are you drinking tonight? John, I am back to the Bravery Brewing uh, Gunny. Ooh, uh, yes. I, nice. I quite enjoyed. I went back in preparation for this. I didn't get a chance to revisit the whole movie before we started. Uh, so I went back and watched uh, the, the rest of it before we did this. And then I listened to our podcast. I was inspired by Rich, who actually went back and listened to the one you and Mike and I did together. And uh, I was struck by an analogy that I made that the, the car is a lot like the barrels in Jaws. From a purely visual standpoint, in the first half of the movie, Carpenter doesn't have a lot of bullets in his chamber. Like, he's really got Michael Myers, and he's got the car. Uh, and so he doesn't, he wants to save Michael, the, the the really scary stuff you can do with Michael Myers and with his mask. He really saves that for this half of the film. So in the first half, as we've talked about, I mean, he gets a ton of mileage, no pun intended, out of mm-hmm. that station wagon. I mean, from, from him slamming on the brakes, uh, the car passing by behind Dr. Loomis when he's at the hardware store. So... Yeah, like it's time to get out of the car. It's it's done its job. But I do think it's actually, again, it speaks to the creativity that Carpenter really brought to this in terms of finding ways to wring scares out of it when nobody's getting stabbed. Absolutely. I mean, as we know, the body count is very minimal in this film. And as far as Loomis knows at this point, it was just the guy that uh, contributed his 
jumpsuit or mechanics uniform to the cause for Michael Myers. And I don't even think he even saw the body, as I recall. So no. nobody's dead yet. Uh, Luke, uh, how are you doing tonight, bud? And uh, do you have a Manhattan going there or uh, old fashioned or what's going on? <laughs> I did not. I, I did class the joint up here with a uh, a fine red wine, actually, but it's not that classy. It is a seven dollar bottle of wine. And I opened it two <laughs> days ago. I have to drink it tonight or it's going to go bad. So pulled out the vacuum seal and poured myself a glass of that. <laughs> well, we can help you with that. We can uh, definitely give you a reason to to put the rest of that wine away. Uh, and Rich is always yeah, I can't let my seven dollars go to waste. <laughs> no, don't. But that'd be tragic. <laughs> Where did we leave off as far as you're concerned, Luke? Do you have any thoughts oh. on this uh, issue? This time, right before this session, I rewatched the part of the movie that we had not covered yet. Uh, I started it right around nightfall, so after the hardware store, um, when it mm-hmm. suddenly becomes very dark, <laughs> they're driving yeah, around. That's perfect. <laughs> and uh, and I was surprised by two things. One is um, entirely internal to me, which was just that it, my my brain was picking out different things to emphasize on this viewing than it did last time. Last time, I think maybe I was watching it in a sort of oppositional mind frame. And this time I was a lot more sympathetic to it. That helped a lot. But it might have been a result of the movie itself because all the nighttime stuff, it seemed to me, moves at a pretty rapid clip. Like you just get mm. into serious trouble pretty pretty fast. And um, once Michael's moving around and going in and out of houses, uh, the sense of jeopardy doesn't really let up at all. It, it, in the beginning, when it's daylight and he's driving around, I really like that stuff. But um, but I think the tension is just ratcheted up in this part, the, the second 50 minutes, 45 minutes, however long it is you're spending in nighttime. It changed the experience quite a bit for me. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, I still find my attention wavering a little bit in Annie's long goodbye, as I like to call it. Um, <laughs> this extraordinarily extended stalking sequence with her. But uh, but yeah, I think definitely, you know, the dramatic stakes are very clearly rising as we move along in the film, as as well they should. And something I just read, I'm going to throw out randomly here, just today, I have this photo book that a friend got me for my birthday this last year. It was a set photographer, a very young woman. Everyone was young when they were making this movie. But uh, she was there, and Carpenter gave her just tons of access. And even like, I'd never heard of this before, but it kind of makes sense from a publicity standpoint. He would restage scenes after they'd gotten the takes that they needed for the camera and he would kind of almost let her direct and and the only camera there is hers in order to get stills so they would redo the scenes her photos are not like behind the dean cundy's camera or something it's another take that they would not always but a lot of the time they would just do another take for her for the for the still photography and i thought that was really interesting anyway i was looking at it and this book was filled with little nuggets. Uh, The reason I bring it up now is that John Carpenter said that he was very aware, uh, he he told the photographer uh, for this book, that the balance of of comedy and lighter moments with scary moments are so important to make the scary moments work. And we kind of know this, and we, we touch on it with various films. 
but it was interesting to see how kind of top of mind that aspect of staging scares was for Carpenter um, at even at that time that he, he really believed that kind of, I think what we now know is kind of a truism that if you're unrelentingly scary, then the audience isn't being properly sensitized, like, cause their barriers are up, their defenses are up, their guard is up and you need to just kind of have things like, I think the reference that he made was Bob, um, quote unquote, Bob, not really Bob, Michael with the glasses and the sheet where you're sort of struck by the absurdity of it while at the same time, you know, you're giving a nervous chuckle while you know that Linda is actually in trouble, for instance. Could have worked that in later, but I don't know, it popped it in my head. <laughs> <laughs> Let's move on. <laughs> that's a that's that's a plus transition there, John. <laughs> there are no rules. You can, you can do what you want. We are professionals, folks. I do a lot of editing of this podcast, and I, I'm, I'm afraid to tell you that's far from my low point. All right. <laughs> yeah, you won't so. know it. You won't know it listening to this, but John actually speaks with a with a alarmingly Shatner-esque cadence. Sometimes it can be very fun to edit. <laughs> you know, you're you're joking, but you're not entirely wrong. And uh, this is uh, Luke's first experience with that. Yeah. Okay. Both things, both things can be true. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, in my notes, we kind of come back to Loomis and Sheriff Brackett uh, hanging out at the Myers house. Like, as Luke indicated earlier, yeah, it's we're fully after dark now and they are hanging out. And we, we touched on this uh, getting ahead of ourselves last time a few times. But this is where they actually find the remains of a dog that the audience never uh, sees. And I'll kind of present this in this way. Jason had a toilet. Michael ate a dog. <laughs> Biological imperatives are being satisfied by the earliest incarnations of both of these characters. And you don't get a lot of that from the big three, Jason, Michael, and Freddy, in, in the vast majority of the films. Freddy obviously is dead the whole time we know him, so that makes sense. And Jason and Michael do basically get there quick. I think we'll probably touch on at some point in this conversation the fact that by the end of this movie, we pretty much know that Michael has to be supernatural, at least in some way, because uh, the dude you know, gets up after six bullets or whatever it is. But anyway, here and there, you're reminded that these guys started out as human beings, eating and shitting and presumably sleeping and everything else. Loomis, though, is consistently saying things like, this is no man. He says it here uh, to Brackett. And he doesn't call Michael it again like he did at the beginning of the film. Uh, but he does say this is no man, despite the eating of the dog. And before I kick it back to you guys, I'll, I'll just leave off with we have this, I think, ridiculous jump scare in this sequence where the window in Judith's old bedroom suddenly shatters as a traffic light just untethers from its cable, it snaps or something, and a hundred feet of slack rubber or something rubber bands it into the house and breaks this window. Has that ever happened in real life? Or is this just one of the crazier, more far-fetched jump scares in cinema history? I don't know. I don't think I'm, it's a traffic light. Oh, okay. There's no real well, way to know, though. Well, what is it? Did Vic, would you have a theory? What is it? 
it looked to me like something connected to like shutters or an awning or something. Because it's definitely on a hinge. It's not swinging from a cable. Really? Yeah. Now, hang on. I'm going to look. I'm going to, I'm just, it, it never occurred to me to just do this, but I'm going to look at the plot synopsis and see if, uh, if it tells me, hang on. Yeah. While you're doing that, Luke, uh, what are your thoughts on this? Well, this is one of those things that annoyed me, um, on the last viewing and actually still annoyed me on this viewing a little bit because <laughs> I couldn't tell what it was and what caused mm-hmm. it. And it seemed unnecessary. And, uh, you think he's going to look out the window and see Michael out there or something. And this, he, you see some thing that came off the eve of the house maybe it's not 100 percent clear like a little piece of gingerbread woodwork or something that was above the window i don't know <laughs> but it's not that elaborate a house so i don't know what would have come off it and why now i don't know it's just very frustrating for me the last time i watched it i mean i don't know that i went frame by frame or anything but i did rewind it at least and i thought it really did look like one of those you know long cylindrical things that um you know the lights weren't on obviously but but like a a traffic light or um, a power power strip or something yeah it's conceivable it could be some part of a of a power line because there is a lot of apparatus on those things you know what my brain just went to on this, though? I just kind of concluded that it is one of those sort of uh, low-budget 1970s horror movie snafus, like an actual snafu situation, normal, all fucked up. Like, it just <laughs> – this is the way it goes sometimes. There's going to be something that you you didn't get a great coverage of, but um, it just did its job. It broke the window, so for a second, you jumped. Um, and that's all it really needed to do. I'm a little frustrated that it didn't do more than that. But even if it were a movie that had less of a reputation, it wouldn't have bothered me. I'd have been like, oh, this is great. It just adds to the dream-like weird quality of it all. Um, and so I think I end up holding this movie to a higher standard, and that's not fair of me. If it happened in you know, Messiah of Evil, I would have been like, that was awesome. But you know, it happens in this, so I'm like, you can't tell what it is. It's, fr- it's frustrating. Well, again, the context of this conversation is, you know, this is widely considered, possibly, and we're we're giving it that credit, the greatest slasher movie of all time. So I think it's fair to to try to hold it to a higher standard if we can. Vic, did you turn up anything? I have an answer. Ah. If you're ready, uh, TVTropes.org declares that it is a broken gutter. Oh. oh. That kind of makes sense. Yeah. A rain gutter like they're running along the side of the house and one of those just snapped off and somehow it's flimsy glass just broke it well to be <laughs> to be fair john i don't know if you noticed there's ten thousand leaves falling and nobody's cleaning the gutters at the old myers place <laughs> yeah that's true <laughs> <laughs> this movie is really about uh, the importance of gutter maintenance <laughs> one of the many subtexts I love that like somebody is listing this house to be sold, and yet whoever is doing that has not put a nickel into making it remotely presentable. I mean, <laughs> is it the state? Is it the city? If there was an know. HGTV back then, you would have an episode where flippers come in and buy this house and then put in a, a nice white kitchen and gray walls in every single room. Absolutely. Lots of wainscoting and... Um, <laughs> shiplap and things like that (laughs) yes there'd be shiplap for sure (laughs) (laughs) all right well i know we touched on the dog does anybody want to talk anything more uh, say anything else about the eating of the dog 
What do you serve with raw dog? Jeez. Oh, a mustard packet. Red, red, white, yeah. <laughs> uh, maybe a maybe a hard cider or something. It conjures the mental image of like Michael just, you know, sitting at a white tablecloth table with this dog <laughs> just laid out in front of him and his cutlery and his napkins and a <laughs> candlelight. Raw <laughs> dog. <laughs> yeah, right. My next note was when we kind of cut back to the first scenes of Lori actually babysitting Tommy. And we're going to have this block of programming on TV for Halloween night hosted by Dr. Demented, which I believe is a made up, you know, Elvira type character or whatever. They lead off their programming with uh, an old black and white movie, which many people will be familiar with. Of course, it's Howard Hawks. I think it's The Thing from Another World is the original title. Man, lots of cutaways to that movie within this movie. And uh, the pretty funny series, if if you are familiar, if you aren't familiar with it on YouTube, Everything Wrong With, these various horror films. I think that maybe they do other non-horror too. But anyway, uh, Everything Wrong With Halloween is worth a watch if you haven't seen it. And And they pointed out, did we really need to let the movie on TV's opening title sequence run in this movie? Uh, but John Carpenter thought we did. Well, it's, I think Carpenter's affection for that for that film is obvious. So, uh, yeah, I can kind of see it. <laughs> uh, it's he, fan service for himself, I guess. Exactly. <laughs> I was wondering, did do we know if he had plans to make the thing at this point? I mean, maybe it was like like on his like wish list of like dream gigs. Right. Somebody asked me, like, yeah, like I would love to do, you know, the Dark Tower or something. Or something. Right. It, it doesn't mean I'm planning on doing it. I was just wondering if there was like a fun Hollywood anecdote, like he was vying for the rights to both The Thing and Forbidden Planet, and whichever one came through, he was going to make next. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I haven't heard that, but he kind of got a blank check for what he would do next after this movie, and probably a lot of meetings with studios where they're like, So, what would you like to do? And he's like, Well, what would I like to do? You know. A remake of the thing was at the top of the list, probably. I'm gonna, you know what? I'm gonna put that in the trivia section on IMDb, and let's just see if it catches on. <laughs> ah. <laughs> you heard it we, here first. <laughs> I don't know if you try that shit on Wikipedia, man. You're gonna get banned. So then, Lori continues to deny evidence that she is being stalked. Uh, I think I started bitching about this last time. I'm going to bitch about it more uh, because she kicks into high gear here because Tommy is frantically trying to warn her that someone creepy is out there. And Laurie just sort of brushes it off as guess what? Superstition. Yes. There's no boogeyman, Tommy. Sure. I've disregarded warning after warning that someone is out there and after me in some way, but uh, I will choose to ignore your report of a prowler. That's kind of how she plays it. I, I guess it's a shame that Timmy doesn't have the vocabulary or the common sense to describe the guy as wearing garage mechanic clothes and a mask, which presumably would have corroborated uh, his story in, in Lori's eyes because she's seen this very guy with her own eyes uh, multiple times, maybe five times today, something like that. 
But I think regardless of his specificity of description, she has more than enough info at this stage of the game to be taking steps to protect herself and others by now. We're going to see that Tommy gets two cracks at it here, and she dismisses him and his warnings both times. John, I love that you just called him Timmy. Timmy, Tommy. I did. I My note says Timmy. Yeah. You see how dismissive you are of him? Why do you expect Lori to take him seriously? I you should have told Lassie. Timmy and Lassie, they, yeah. they have a good thing going. Paul fell down a well. He and Ben Tramer were drunk. Um, uh, reminds me of the time that uh, Vic did a whole show from a well, bottom of a well. In, in India. Yes, deep callback. Uh. No, so John, this has never bothered me. Like, not even a little bit. I mean, I think, and I'm sure we talked about this some last time, but, you know, it speaks to the expectation of safety in suburban America in 1978, number one. And number two, it's Halloween. And she saw the car twice, right? So the car outside the window. Uh, And then she saw the car when he slams on the brakes. And then she saw the guy in the mask twice, once behind the hedges and then once at her house. No, also across the street, also at the school, at the school as well. Oh, is he out of the car? I couldn't remember if he was in the car. Oh, yeah, no, he's standing next to the car, staring at her, but could be just staring at the whole school. That's the first time. Exactly. Yeah. And it's Halloween. Like, there's a guy in the – we didn't even call the police. And be like, there's a guy in a mask on the sidewalk. That's valid, but it's like they're trying to have their cake and eat it too. And I want to hear what Luke thinks. But you can't play it where like this eerie disquiet is ramping up. And our protagonist is, her spidey sense is tingling. And she's she's the one of the two friends, of the three friends, that's kind of like, uh, you know, I don't know. I'm uh, I'm I'm picking up something here. Uh, when she spots him earlier and then have the character just every time flip and then decide, nah, it's nothing. You could play it that she just doesn't, it doesn't bother her. But how do you play it scene after scene? Oh, it's bothering her. Oh, it's bothering her. But just like every time she just lands at the same, oh, I'm, I'm being silly. I don't know. Well, I think you could play that a couple times, but not eight times. I think it's bothering her, but more than her, it's bothering us. I think it bothers us to a greater degree than it bothers her because we're hearing the music. We know what he's doing when she's not seeing him, and we know his whole backstory. She doesn't know any of that stuff. So for me, it works that she keeps overruling the idea that she's in jeopardy. If little Tony comes up saying he's <laughs> the boogeyman. <laughs> You might rule that out. You might say, I'm not going to. It's Halloween. He's 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 nine. I'm not going to pay that much attention to it. Well, you would <laughs> say that, Leon. <laughs> <laughs> well, exactly. I'm going to get all the names wrong from the rest of the from here on out. <laughs> yeah, um, okay, I would argue, too, that I think there is some nuance to her performance when she I mean, she really yells at Tommy, which is not something Timmy, Tony. It is Tommy. It is Tilly. Tommy. Yeah. Tilly. No, she Tilly. yells at him the second time. Yes. She gets really angry at him. Exactly. And that you almost you never see her like express that level of anger. She seems like a wonderful babysitter. I think that I find reflective of her her 
inner turmoil about this, right? Yes, like she doesn't get to the point where she calls the cops, but she does get to the point where she screams at a at a ten year old to shut up and be quiet. That justifies some of what's going on inside her. I think you guys make really good points. I think a, a modern film would can, at least have just this. Stop there, John. Just stop. We made really good points. <laughs> we can move on. Sorry. <laughs> I, I think we would take the next step in a modern film to like play out the idea of either she does it or talks about doing it. Well, what are you going to do? Like call the cops and say some guy is, you know, walking down the sidewalk in a Halloween mask. Like you sort of said, Vic, I think we could use that beat though, just to kind of remind the skeptical viewer that we don't have much else to go on. But I would also say like, we don't have any women on this podcast right now, but if, if you asked almost anyone, how would you react to seeing this dude doing these same things like six times in the same day, even on Halloween? I don't think they'd just be like, oh, I'm sure he's not actually looking at me. Once, sure. Five, six times, no. He's looking at you, dude. <laughs> the beat they could have used, because again, I don't think she could call the cops, but I could see her going and finding you know, a baseball bat in Timmy's room and just your Timmy, Tommy, fuck. <laughs> now you're doing it. Now you're doing it. <laughs> but I, can see I called him Timmy once. Like, like when he's not looking like kind of, kind of secretly trying to grab some kind of weapon and just put it someplace uh, that, that feels accessible. If she said like, Toby, go get your bat. And he brings it down <laughs> and then she puts it somewhere. <laughs> Just slightly, where later it will be out of reach. Like he'll yeah. come in the door and now he's between her and the bat. So it's useless. But if she would have thought of that, I guess. I don't need a scene where she's explaining why she's not going to call the police. To me, her snapping at, at the kid is covers it. And I like that we don't go through the reasoning process. I really do like that. I feel like the movies that spell things out for you all the way through, they don't wear as well for repeated viewings. Because you, 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 your brain fills that stuff in well enough in this movie i think they replay this exact dynamic so many times without evolving it like to me that just in and of yeah. itself from a screenwriting perspective is not ideal maybe my solutions aren't aren't ideal either but no they, they make a lot of sense to me actually i'm just i'm just resisting them because i like it the way it is so on this point so i'm <laughs> trying to fight you but it's it's probably uh, moronic on my part so i apologize yeah. don't and, apologize to him his ideas are stupid <laughs> that's, see, yeah, Vic will always uh, tell you, don't be too nice to John. That's Vic's like number one advice to guests on the show. Shut the fuck up, John. <laughs> there you go. Of course, an abusive relationship. <laughs> a tough crowd. Man. Okay. Well, I, I will say that what activates Lori's heroism, and I guess this is kind of a duh, but uh, it's the need to save Tommy. And I think what they're doing and uh, Lindsay, but uh, what they're doing here with the character arc is they're saying she's a scaredy cat who can't even deal with the notion that she's danger. She'd rather just be in denial of it. However, she will find her courage when she must because she's made a promise to keep Tommy safe from the boogeyman tonight. When that happens, you know, she, of course, will rise to the challenge. This is about her insistence upon rationality running headlong into something completely and utterly irrational. 
And so I think she's going to cling to that rationality until she can't deny it anymore because it's it's crossing the street and getting ready to stab her. Uh, at which point, then she has to, yeah, she has to find this kind of well within herself to protect the kids, which I like the sort of the matriarchal sense of that. Although it would have been funny if she'd been like, look, I'm going to save you, Tammy, but, but we're going to let... <laughs> So well, we're going to have to sacrifice Lindsay, okay? <laughs> I think Bob and Linda would help with that, but yeah. let's not get ahead of ourselves. <laughs> I can start it on that yet. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, so my next note is back at the other house, Lester the dog. We have more dog shenanigans. That's the dog at, I guess this is uh, Lindsay's house, right? He gets a whiff of Michael skulking around out there and um, jeopardizes Michael's ability to stealthily stalk. And so we get what I consider an on-camera kill of the dog. We cut in maybe a second after Lester's actual heart stopped beating or something, but I think this kind of goes on on the Michael Myers uh, highlight reel, if you want to call it that of murders in all of these films because so say what you want about Jason and Muffy. Jason doesn't ever kill a dog on camera whatsoever. I, I will say that Michael's kind of being attacked here, or at least like the dog is cramping his style big time. Uh, it's semi self-defense versus like when a little kid accidentally runs into him on the street and he, he, he lets them go. I think this is a more immediate threat, even if all Lester's poor Lester is trying to do is warn others of Michael's presence by barking. It's maybe not something that Michael can just let slide. On the other hand, we also know, based on the other dog, that Michael might turn Lester into a Jeffrey Dahmer sandwich later. Two of the implied kills in this film are dogs. So I think that based on this information... PETA must have Michael on the top of their most wanted slashers list of all time. So he's got that trophy. Maybe not the greatest slasher movie of all time. That's TBD. But he, he's definitely the only slasher killer I can think of who's killed two dogs in one movie, one of them on camera. Very hard to get away with that and keep your audience with you. Uh, also, really weird coincidence that the name of the dog in Friday the 13th Part 2 is Muffy. And so is the name of the kid that Lori's babysitting. <laughs> that took me a minute. <laughs> John, I know you, you affectionately, if sarcastically, refer to this as Annie's long goodbye. I find this whole sequence just to be masterful. Like a really uh, intense ratcheting up of tension that really you, you, you just keep hitting like point after point of like, oh my God, this is it. This is it. There's such a thing as doing as as going too far with that. I'm trying to think. There was something, there was something we covered that had that. Oh, it was um the James Wan film, Malignant. Malignant yes. had one of those scenes that just went on way too long and didn't you know have sort of a satisfactory payoff. This to me is perfect. Uh, it really the, from him watching her through the window. We're familiar with that. Her going out to the laundry room, getting stuck at the window, the doors opening and closing, and Michael just in the background of the frame. It's all the payoff of the stuff that Carpenter has done up to this point. 
teaching us to watch the back of the frame, to, to scan the screen, to find out where Michael is going to be. And sometimes he's there and sometimes he isn't. And every time you're sure she's going to die uh, until she gets into the car, which is, I think, interestingly, the most uh, confined space, right? She goes from the house to the you know laundry room, garage, whatever, shed. And only when she's in the car where she's really in sort of arm's reach Uh, Does he finally make his move? True. I mean, I I think we have like multiple things to potentially talk about before that sequence, which makes me think it's a reminder how long it really takes to get to the car and her demise. I, I certainly agree with you in spurts. Like, I think there are amazing shots and moments in this, but it takes a long time between Annie spilling the butter on her clothes to her dying. I mean, just in raw minutes on the on the counter, we run a reel of film or whatever in old school terms before she actually dies. So that feels really old fashioned to me. All right, before we, yeah, like let's talk briefly about this moment that kicks off this whole part of the film. Michael stalks Annie, I guess we would call it. This is a pretty shameless moment when she spills this butter on her clothes and she, oh no, I have to take off my clothes. This is right up there with Vic's uh, eternal, let's go skinny dipping, but I forgot my suit (laughs) stuff. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) And then we have another later, oops, I got my butt stuck in a window moment. And look, I know this stuff is here to meet the requirements of horny little bastards that are such a big part of the audience for slasher films then and now, I I presume. But uh, it's a little embarrassingly obvious the way they had to force some partial nudity or whatever into the movie. And yes, you can't forget this movie was made in 1978. And you know me, I don't, you know, we've actually had some fairly spirited debates about slasher movie nudity and whether or not we should get out our shame fingers or not. And I'm normally on the other side. I'm not judging, but I do think it's it's clear the filmmakers feeling of obligation to get some skin in this movie. It seems dated and a little artless. Luke, I, I have thoughts on this, but do you want to do you want to jump in? Because I've John and I have we've had many talks about the artful use of nudity in slasher film. So, yeah, what, what's your take on this? I'm going to jump in here and say that uh, I normally am appalled by nudity. Absolutely appalled. But in this case, <laughs> in this case, I found it to be actually pretty artful. Like, I mean, her spilling the butter on herself, she's just she's just absently swirling that pot wash on the phone, and then it spills on her. I'm like, I would do that. I would totally do that. Um, and then she turns away from the camera to take off her uh, her top. I, I, like, so you don't, you see her back and you see her underwear. But but that's it. Like it to me, it worked. It was, it walked up the line, but didn't cross it. That didn't bother me at all. Other things bother me about this sequence, like when she's just dumping endless piles of Tide into the laundry, <laughs> the laundry machine. I'm like, how much detergent do you need? It's one shirt. But um, that, that bothered me. And other things like the door closing on its own bothered me, and her getting stuck in the window bothered me. But but uh, but her spilling butter on her shirt and taking it off, that was fine. I thought. So, yeah, I agree with you, Luke. In general, I find this to be a much more artful and kind of sexy scene, certainly than, you know, what we get with Bob and Linda later on. That feels clunky and awkward and forced to me. This feels not just sexy in that 
you know, we see a little bit of skin, but it's not like sort of frontal nudity. I'm a big fan of Annie in the sort of oversized men's shirt that she's wearing. Like, I, again, that's a really sexy way to do it without just like dropping the sheet and showing everyone your boobs. But it also, I think, creates a real sense of vulnerability in her that amps up the tension in a way, in addition to being kind of sexy. Like, I find it, I find it functional uh, as far as making the scene suspenseful. It, that's interesting you say it's vulnerability because it's that, but it's also a good character note because she's yelling at the girl in the other room like, uh, Molly, where's a robe? I need a robe. And, uh, and so she's not expressing herself as vulnerable, even though she has put herself in that position. So that's an interesting, I don't know, opposition. That's an interesting thing to point out, though, that it makes her more vulnerable. For sure it does. I agree with that. I mean, does Molly and Timmy, did they ever bring over the robe or, or, or what? <laughs> no, she just seems to find a shirt hanging next to the refrigerator and she puts that on. I, I'm, I'm pretty sure you meant Lindsay there, but I don't know. <laughs> they're both, I think they're both Lindsay. named Muffy, guys. <laughs> yeah. I, can't, I couldn't, I, for the life of me, I really couldn't remember her name. I wasn't trying to be funny. <laughs> uh, I think we might have Rich with us. Yes. From beyond the grave. I feel a, I feel a presence in the room. <laughs> Rich, are you amongst us? Hold on. It's John, a you get a piece of paper and a, and a, and a pencil so that you can start scribbling madly all over the paper. <laughs> suddenly we're back in season one, uh, the Haunted House season. And uh, yeah, it's suddenly got cold in here. Yes, Rich, uh, glad you could join us. Uh, I know you're uh, having a tough night work-wise, but... Uh, Thanks for stopping by. And we're talking about basically the part of the movie where Annie is being stalked by Michael. The debate we just had, I think the guys made a pretty good argument, but I thought it, it did, and I feel weird saying this, but it did feel a little forced and gratuitous how we kind of get Annie out of her clothes. What are your thoughts on that? Wow, you just like, just throw me right in the fire, John. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I yep. came in a conversation where you guys are talking about things being vulnerable and sexy. And I'm like, Jesus Christ, with this crew, that we could be talking about anything in the whole movie. <laughs> um, well, you know, like she spills the butter on herself. And like, I thought it was like a little contrived. What do you think? I mean, I mean, contrived. Yes. But I will say that it's it's fitting enough in her character that she is like not even like having like a second thought about it, you know, as she sort of like uses these like loose excuses to, to, to disrobe with like little regard for, for who might see what, at least that is built in that this is not someone who's going to be like shrink away. Should one of the kids come by. Yeah, true. I mean, both of these girls, Linda and Annie are, you know, big, broad, earthly sexual kinds of, teenage girls <laughs> they don't they don't have any hang-ups uh that's clear yeah i i think that 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 kind of works luke was mentioning i think the next thing we might talk about is does michael lock annie in the laundry room is it just the wind but who puts a locking mechanism on the outside of a laundry room door are you afraid your underwear is going to be trying to jailbreak one night Fortunately, though, any child being babysat or someone roaming the neighborhood can freely enter your laundry room to keep that underwear from getting any ideas. But you definitely want the lock to be on the outside of, of the door. 
I mean, one, one, one thing I can say is that this was shot in West Hollywood, and I've done enough house hunting in, in the many, many decades old homes of Los Angeles to understand that there is no rhyme or reason to where you place you know, locks or windows or staircases like they, they just they just were they were building so fast. No one was really questioning it. So, like, I, I'm willing to accept this is just a design flaw in the house. Yeah. I, uh, yeah. My bathroom door is installed upside down. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, it does happen. Never put anything past a incompetent contractor. You're, you're right about that. Could also be that the laundry room doubles as Lindsay's timeout room. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. True. Lindsay seems well aware that the door locks. Yeah. You have to be on the right side of it when it does. <laughs> She seems like kind of a pistol, this Lindsay. Yeah, I'm trying to put my myself back to early watches of the movie. I was talking, Rich, earlier about how I feel it just takes forever. When Michael first shows up there to the point where he kills Annie in the garage, it's like, I don't know, 20 minutes, half an hour of running time. I felt like this watch, it took too long. Did you feel that way at all, like pacing-wise, or do you think it's paced? It's still paced kind of perfectly. I feel like there's more of a logical argument for for what you're saying than there is like a, an emotional argument. I agree that by today's like pacing standards, yes, it's a little long and like painfully drawn out. But I think that for this film, it actually has a really nice sort of like deliberate like it really plays up the the stocking of it all in a way that i find kind of satisfying i like the amount of, of build up to it you know and i and i think that there's something to when she finally meets her end have we made it that far by the no, way no no we haven't okay well I'll, I'll i'll save that i'll save that for when we get there it's a bit of a a set piece in the sense that like you have to kind of see her go through all these like little scenarios that make it sort of a a little bit of a sitcom. Um, but I don't know. It, it plays well for me. I did always like the feeling, the metaphorical noose kind of tightening around her neck. In previous watches, I sort of felt the suspense with this character. You know, you know, it's not looking good for her. You presume they want us to like her. I think she's certainly likable to a degree. I mean, I think the case could be made that both Annie and Linda have a certain obnoxious quality that might be intentional so that we're not sobbing in our popcorn when they meet their ends. Like, you know, Annie is a terrible babysitter, possibly not the best friend ever, but I think you are feeling real concern for her through this whole part of the movie. I, I was, and I, you know, I'd still do watching it, but she has normal flaws and foibles. Like, unlike Lori, she's not a, heroin with a capital h she's more of just an average teenage girl right just your just your average fentanyl average fentanyl Her heroin fentanyl uh, oh fuck it. i see what you did there cut that cut that yeah, yeah that's hitting the that's hitting the <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. but hey i like the way where your head's at back yeah <laughs> Uh, we don't know until later if Michael comes in this open door behind Annie that we see somewhere around here. I'm going to be jumping around a, a little bit, but he may go into the garage from the outside. 
that's up for debate in the sequence but apparently he cut it he chooses he chooses to stay outside rather than strolling into the house while her her back is turned and eventually he's gonna get into the car and so on and we'll we'll talk about that in a minute but i did want to say there's a tv broadcast this uh dr demented horror block of of movies for halloween night and the guy doing the voiceover is obviously the silver shamrock pitchman from halloween 3 there's something menacing about him but i i think it's kind of funny that in this movie the same voice like saying things the exact same way is supposedly innocent but in that movie he's malevolent I googled uh, Dr. Demento, the radio personality, mm-hmm. to briefly see if there was maybe some connection that uh, Carpenter was drawing on there. Uh, I can't speak to that, but I did discover that he he did do a song called Hamster Love. <laughs> That's a worthy footnote for inclusion. <laughs> I spend- like, those things that I didn't like I didn't notice. I was looking at you guys, and then all of a sudden I see on the side of my screen Hamster Love, and I was like, what? What? What did I click on? I spent a good chunk of my teenagehood tracking the the movements of Dr. Demento. Yeah, isn't that where Weird Al Yankovic came from? Yes, that's basically the the grounds from which he sprang. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But no no real connection to the Halloween franchise that I can detect. Oh, well. What's your, your, to your question, John, like, other than assumption... What makes you say that he's the voice of an innocent here? Not Dr. Demento. For for the record, not Dr. <laughs> right. Demento. Well, you know, in that movie, the guy is obviously working for this evil toy maker who's, you know, out to, you know, turn all of our children into bubbling piles of snakes and spiders and things. Uh, whereas, you know, presumably in Halloween, uh, this is uh, just an innocent local affiliate putting on some programming for the kids on Halloween night, right? I mean, <laughs> I mean, those those are two big presumptions, John. I just want like, I mean, you brought this question to the table, so I just want to point out like, a, you don't know, those kids are in there watching it. If they put on silver shamrock masks, they've got a snake crawling out of their eyes within just a few minutes. And furthermore, the guy in Halloween 3, he's just a voiceover actor, man. Don't blame the artist. Yeah, I'm sure uh, that guy, uh, the old Stonehenge manipulating evil (laughs) Irish toy maker, he's like, ah, just bring in a guy with a cool voice. Give him this. (laughs) Like, what about Dr. Demented? Is he he available? Can we get Dr. Do we have Dr. Demented money? (laughs) Yeah, but or you know, in the in the Carpenter verse, you know, maybe maybe it is all connected, and uh, everyone else in the neighborhood actually melted down, and these kids, they Michael saved them in a way, because if they had just kept watching the movies, the masks would have come out. Who knows? I will say in Halloween three, I think we touched on this when we talked about Halloween three, on television is the original Halloween. Like you see Michael and Laurie on TV. I think it's in a bar or something, but they're watching yeah. the original Halloween in Halloween three. So it gets meta. Okay. Well, um, Annie goes into the garage and by now we finally know her time has, has run out, but no, she comes back out again. She gets more time to find her keys at least. And she traverses the space between the houses 
And the neighborhood, I think this is kind of creepy. I liked it. It seems a lot quieter now. Like I think it's the first time we don't see any trick-or-treaters or running teens or cars. And the foreboding is starting to build. You really get the sense that Annie is completely alone now. And not even Lindsay is here anymore. Because by this point, she's gone over to the other house with Tommy and uh, Lori. Oh, and she's singing to herself, and she sings like, Oh, Paul, I can no longer stall, which to me, I know she improv this, and to me, it had a double meaning. Like, it's the writer, actress, and or the director are joking with us, like, okay, no more stalling. Annie has run out of time. This is it. <laughs> she's she's going to get killed. <laughs> and so, yes, the classic moment where she came back for keys because the door was locked. The door of the car is now unlocked, doesn't realize it. She gets in, notices that the windows are all steamed up. She touches it. Oh, that's weird. And then, boom, you know, like a shark from the back seat, Michael makes his move. And I believe that there's no score in this in this sequence. And it's it's in a kind of an extended strangulation kind of kind of a kill and i want to hear what you guys think of it of course this is the first you know real kill of the movie and it's a big deal and it's annie but nancy loomis as she was billed at that time she does a lot of acting with her peepers in this kill those eyeballs are rolling and i I think i i mentioned this the first time we talked about the movie i think if she just held it to the first time you see it like there's a take from an angle, a side angle, farther away, that's perfect. But then we come back to these wide rolling eyes a couple more times, like there's a reverse close-up. It just feels like too much to me. I think her acting in this kill is mostly great up until the very end. Maybe you can justify it. I'm trying to justify it like to get a little silly here. This is an R movie. It's not an X movie at that time, an unrated movie. It's an, it's supposed to make money. It's supposed to – we're not traumatizing the real teenagers and the 20-somethings in the audience. This is – you know, there's, it's a re, there's a reason that Audition is not the highest-grossing horror movie of all time. Martyrs is not the highest-grossing horror movie of all time. Or Maniac, for that matter, the William Lustig classic that we covered earlier. Maybe it's taking it down a little bit from the level of – uh, disturbing. I don't know, but I, I find it a bit comical, and I don't personally love that. So, who wants to tell me what an idiot I am? Ooh, ooh, me! <laughs> <laughs> all right, Take no. it away, Vic. That is your role on this podcast, after all. <laughs> but I, I love the detail of the the door being locked and then being unlocked because that it's it's like that perfect thing that you as an audience member feel really smart for like noticing, but also completely understand that it's something that, that, you know, she would not notice. It sort of feels good to feel smarter than your character, but, but at the same time, not making your character like dumb, but also amps up the tension when you realize, Oh shit, he's in the car. And that's what I mean about the car being of, of everything we've, we've encountered up to this point. It's the most claustrophobic space. You know there's no way she's getting out of that car. This is not like an, an epic kill by any stretch of the imagination. But I don't, that's not what Halloween's – that's not the, the game that Halloween's playing. This is not a, an especially violent, gory movie. I think it probably has some reputation for that. Partly because the sequels started to up the the violence 
as many many horror films did, but also because when it came out, some of the violence probably was a little shocking. We'll get on to some of the other kills uh, as we go, but you know, it's not. There's very little actual blood spilled in this in this movie. So it's an it's an intimate kill with some cool details. I think John, I actually think there is kind of like a deep bass sting when when he lunges out of the back seat and grabs her that just oh, kind yeah, of holds yeah. through it. But it's not it's certainly not it's not scored uh beyond that. But I like that. I like the steam on the glass. The head on the horn is a really nice touch. So it's got enough little details that, you know, I don't know. It for me it, it pays off the the long buildup of suspense. But it is not it is nowhere in the annals of great uh, slasher film kills. Rich, did you notice this whole eye rolling thing that I'm talking about? <laughs> you know, it's funny. I guess I'm with you. Like, I didn't really pick up on the fact that it kind of got o- overly hammy until like her final shot where she yes. kinda, like, presses her face against the window and like slides down. And, you know, I was about to point out to you that my, you know, one of my favorite savior slash punching bag the the editor was was mm-hmm. would be really to blame for too many eye rolls but what are you gonna do if the you know if the take she gave you for the ending is is her with her eyes open you know like I, there's unless she gave you another option you can't do something else with that so you gotta have her to actually die at the end so yeah i'd say in that case she was either not correctly directed dare i say but it's too much at the very end i'm with you the first one's nice i did so i was like trying to pull it up here to see if vic was right but i actually i don't remember there being any audio that really accompanies like in terms of music that accompanies the kill itself because one of the things that i really liked about it was after this long and winding lead up you know the the tightening of the noose that as, as you say like ultimately it kind of builds up with this with this growing music cue that then when you actually get to the, the kill itself, like it, it drops out and where any other film, you know, before this or after it, with that point would like, you know, like turn the dial up on the, on the music and sort of play it for like, it's full intensity. Like now we're going to like unleash that, that tension and that energy instead, like you're forced to sit uncomfortably and watch this person, squirm with just the sound of of them and this terrible naugahyde seat that they're on um you know and and michael's overalls it really lends a quality of of realism um to this thing that has been like a little bit of a farce up to this point and kind of grounds it again in a way that i think that this movie keeps going back and, and doing where something's a little outlandish or downright silly happens um, you know, and then like you kind of get grounded in some sort of like chilling real life violence, or at least in terms of how it feels. I'm going to throw it to Luke here, but I, I really think that maybe you guys are both right, because my memory was, yeah, there is like some sting, but yeah, it's mostly really aided by the absence of score. And it, it feels a lot more visceral and a lot more real. And one of the things I do love about this movie is that when it's silent, it's always the right choice to be silent. And when there's score, it's always the right choice for there to be score. Like, I think this movie plays that perfectly. No, I absolutely love this kill. Absolutely. Um, from the 
key not working to the or from the door locked door to the not locked door. It's fantastic. When she gets in the car, if I recall correctly, it's silent. And there's this amazing moment where um, after she realizes the fog, she sees the fog and she touches it. There's a, some hang time on that where it seems to me she realizes what that fog means. Mm, and but she doesn't really have time to act on it. And then there is a music thing, I think, where he sits up um, behind her. But he, when he sits up and grabs her, that all happens very fast. It feels very brutal and real. But then from there, it does become a little bit of a mixed bag. It's hard to act out a strangling. I, I, was, I find myself thinking that while I watch it, like this is hard to do. And I can't think of any movies offhand that have portrayed a strangling and kept the camera on the victim's face where I totally believed it. I can't think of any movies offhand that did that. Um, I think this one did it as good as you can. I think the the, the eye rolls to me just struck me more as um, dying panic. More, They didn't seem hammy to me. It seemed like it felt real, like someone vulnerable and panicked and freaked out. When the horn goes off at the end, though, that felt like it was almost a, a button on a comedy scene to some extent. Like, I don't think her head actually hits the horn. It felt like they just decided in, in post, like, oh, we need a sound effect here. How about if the horn goes off? Wouldn't that be great? Because uh, I, I don't think you ever see any part of her touch the steering wheel. She's kind of slumped to the side and back. So that kind of then takes you out of the scene, or took me out of the scene, I should say. But up to that mm-hmm. moment, I thought it was pretty aces and all the things that um, you're saying about eye rolls. I totally understand, but for me, I just chalked it up to, um, my. I found a way to negotiate it so that I bought it, because I really wanted to, because everything that led up to that was so great, I thought. So I, I love this scene. I think this is one of the best kills. Um, in, in a slasher and the fact that it's just with his bare hands also is uh, is pretty fantastic i think that just makes it feel worse yeah i do love the the i think vic mentioned the word intimate or something yeah, yeah it, there's yeah. a tremendous uncomfortable intimacy to it I'd, I'd have to go back and check on the horn like to see if it's properly motivated by the blocking you know what is she actually making contact that's that's something interesting acting that you are dying is something that kids do all the time. Like <laughs> from childhood, you're playing games, you're pretending to die. Uh, but then obviously, you know, parents do it too when they're playing with their kids and actors obviously do it lots. I just was sort of struck by it's odd that we have many dress rehearsals for death in our lives. And then one day it's suddenly not a rehearsal and it's the big show. But uh, I do think that depictions of death in movies are meaningful. You can absolutely not take them seriously, but I I think there's always some value to when a movie does take that ultimate gateway moment. There's birth and there's death. And when they take it seriously, I, I think it's always something that we all like part of why we watch movies, certainly horror movies, is to kind of reconcile ourselves with this aspect of life. And this movie certainly is dealing with the inevitability, I think we touched on it last time, of death. The inevitability of death as a part of fate. Put that aside for now. All right, good scene. Maybe this is a good chance if anyone needs to grab a beer or go to the bathroom or whatever. And then we'll move on and pick up with Linda and her boyfriend and Tommy yelling at the window and all that good stuff. So we cut back to the other house and Tommy is at the window and he observes Michael in the midst of some genuine skullduggery because he's carrying Annie's corpse from the garage to the front door of that house 
which he lightly kicks in. And this time, Tommy just goes apeshit, as you might understand. And as uh, Vic mentioned before, Lori's reaction is she's flat out angry at Tommy this time. And she does not accept his hysterical panic as a sign that there might actually be a dude they should be worried about out there. And it doesn't take much either to send a suddenly moping Tommy back to the couch and the television. Uh, Maybe he blames his lying eyes as well. Uh, I don't know. But they carry on with with their previously scheduled programming. (laughs) Well, look, I mean, the boogeyman is one thing, but a a pissed off Jamie Lee Curtis is something you really need to be afraid of. (laughs) Look, I think, too, that Tommy trusts her. You know, I mean, they established early on that they have a a good relationship. And so if she says it's not the boogeyman, maybe he thinks, you know, she should look. Um, But I do think he feels safe with her. And if she says you're safe, okay, fine, we'll go watch the stupid movie. And then we come back to the Myers house and Sheriff Brackett sneaks up on... Donald Pleasance's character, Dr. Loomis. And um, we already established that this dude is carrying a gun and he's paranoid. But uh, Loomis doesn't pull a gun this time. And we have another reference in the screenplay to the personification of fate. Death has come to your little town, Sheriff, says Loomis. And again, you know, death is my fate. It's your fate. It's the listener's fate. It's... Loomis's fate and it was Donald Pleasance's fate. You know, you can have many different kinds of fate and different kinds of death, but uh, there's one that we all share. And yeah, I, I, I liked that the movie is playing with that idea, even if Sheriff Brackett dismisses it with more fancy talk. <laughs> Mike pointed out in the in our last podcast that this is the the second or third time that Brackett has scared the shit out of somebody. And he was like, somebody, can we put some fucking bells on that guy? (laughs) Yeah. Everybody's entitled to one good scare. He's determined we all get one. (laughs) Yeah. we had that. Honestly, one of my one of my favorite, like sort of comically lighthearted scenes is uh, Loomis playing the prank on the kids that are going to sneak up to the Myers house. Yeah. Uh, And really, it's not even the prank because the prank isn't that good. But it's the little smile that he gives because he does not smile much in this movie. He gives himself a little smile after he scares his kids off. Might be the only smile we get from Loomis in this yeah. particular film. <laughs> yeah, re- re-watching the film with it, the, the idea in my head that we brought up last time about, you know, Loomis is a little crazy. When I was watching it again, I was like, holy shit, yeah. Like, he starts off at an 11 on the crazy scale. On my early viewings, that actually bothered me a lot. I'm like, why doesn't he talk like a psychologist? He should be more clinical in his terms. He shouldn't be talking about evil. He should be talking about like certain personality disorders. That bothered me. But the more I watch it, the less it bothers me. And I just get into the groove of his monologues about evil and fate and uh, and nothing behind his eyes. And I'm like, this is, this is what makes the movie work, I think. All those things um, hold it together and give it a driving momentum forward. Uh, that they wouldn't have if you were talking about, you know, personality disorders. Well, and we we talked a lot about the many ways in which Michael Myers is kind of a cipher, right? He is a he is a blank slate, as we said, but it's not completely blank. 
there's a rough outline in there and we get that outline from Dr. Loomis. And what's great is when you, once you really start to internalize how fucked up Loomis is from having treated Michael Myers for, for 12 years or whatever, you start to see that he's not the most reliable narrator. He's painting a picture for us of what's going on behind Michael Myers' mask. There's doubt being cast on that now, because you're right, like he is not talking clinically. If he was describing his, uh, you know, dissociative personality disorder, I would take that seriously. But the more he talks about evil, and maybe he's right, but maybe he's not, or maybe he's got a weird spin on it, you know, from, from just having nightmares about this guy for the last five years or whatever. Right, but by the end of the movie, you do come around to him being right because he, Michael Myers gets shot six times and disappears. There's something to it, right? Yeah. And then I, I, what you're saying like made me think like, oh, it made, reminded me of that um, that quote, when you stare too long into the abyss, the abyss also looks into you. That might be what we're looking at in Loomis, right? He might have started out as a very clinical guy 15 years ago, and Dealing with Michael Myers is what wore that away and turned him into a guy monologuing about evil while he hides in the bushes. <laughs> you know, it's too bad because I bet that Donald Pleasance did like the character work on that. I bet he had some kind of backstory in his head of how he was approaching it. Uh, and I'm not aware. I've seen a bunch of interviews with him. I'm not aware of anything where he talks about that or anybody asked him about that. But it would be fascinating mm -hmm. to know what his approach to the character was. He starts out saying almost little, almost nothing about this, very little about this movie. And then by like the fourth or fifth movie he's in, he's waxing rhapsodic about Loomis and what it all means and the relationship with Michael. So, but we don't get a lot of insight. Uh, I mean, I think he was on the job here for like two days or something. I, I don't have it in front of me, wow. but he's in the movie for like, 15 to 18 minutes or something and and yes they they didn't have a lot of him and he probably didn't have a lot of prep time there's so much in this performance certainly and i i think you guys are right and i think i you know i said something along the same lines last time but if you just spend four even just four hours a day with michael myers for let's just call it six months let alone years that's going to have a a toll on your sanity. There's no question. And I think that's kind of what, what we're meant to believe here with Loomis is that he's kind of gone around the bend, but anybody would. I think he's also very much motivated by guilt too. I mean, even now before Michael's really rampaged, uh, the question keeps coming up both other characters. And I think in Loomis himself, is there anything Loomis could have done to keep Michael from hurting people? He's always forced to wrestle with that possibility uh, long before he really even knows just how much damage Michael is out there doing. I think that that's something informing Loomis's, uh, Donald Pleasance's performance as Loomis. Linda finally shows up in the movie again with uh, her charming boyfriend, Bob. I picked up from that photo book earlier today that PJ Souls and Jamie Lee Curtis laughed about the fact that at this time in their lives... PJ Souls was actually more like Laurie, and Jamie Lee Curtis was more like the Linda character, personality-wise. And they felt like they were cast in the wrong parts. Uh, at least, you know, they were opposite of their their lifestyles at the time. Even though PJ Souls was uh, married to Dennis Quaid at this time, she was, you know, more this sort of shy, retiring 
introvert type. And Jamie Lee Curtis, you know, even at 19 had this really big personality and it was out there, you know, living the life, partying and so on. So there's a there's a, a real irony to these two actresses at the time. Am I remembering correctly? They're already drinking like while they're pulling up in Bob's van, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then they have all the they have their their really shockingly off putting discussion about <laughs> Lindsay perhaps joining them um, <laughs> for sex. <laughs> yeah, I, I think this is functioning so we won't be broken up when Bob gets his just res- desserts or or something. Bob sucks without that. So sure. <laughs> like, if you, I wouldn't have been broken up if he wasn't also entertaining thoughts of uh, uh, child brides. But um, uh, yeah, they really they, that was sort of mission accomplished. Yeah, I Bob is my least favorite character in this movie for a variety of reasons. Like, I also just find his performance bland. I find his character bland. Uh, even his interactions with with PJ Souls doesn't have any snap or familiarity. Yeah, he, he Bob sucks. Ironically, she handpicked him like Carpenter asked for PJ Soul's input in casting Bob. So blame her, I guess. <laughs> I do, John. I do. <laughs> Damn you, PJ Souls. Okay. Oh, God, I've, I've missed your Donald Pleasance. <laughs> <laughs> I got to get real whispery with it at some yeah. point. So Lindsay is over there contemplating the fact that a boogeyman might be making her home across the street, his personal house of horrors, while she's over there celebrating a fun Halloween across the street. Of course, it would be more fun if Tommy wasn't yelling about it all night. And we have more of a spiritual sequel to Black Christmas thing going on with the phone. Because the employment of the telephone here as a source of scares reminds me in some ways of Black Christmas with its strident ringing and its misappropriation by misanthropic young men. The phone is ringing while Linda and Bob are making love in someone else's bed, uh, the Wallaces. And uh, they're mid-coitus when this phone rings and it's an immediate problem. Do we pick it up? What if it's the Wallaces? And Bob's uh, decision is uh, just to take the phone off the hook. That solves that. The ball's on this guy. <laughs> What's well, also, can we talk about the fact that they walk into someone else's empty house, right? They know they're supposed to be, you know, Annie and or Lindsay something. They don't, you know, I feel like, fuck it. Let's go upstairs, take off our clothes and fuck in a stranger's bed. Yep. I mean, That's speaking, about the size of it. Speaking of the balls on this guy, maybe this is what teenagers in the, <laughs> in the 1970s were like. It seems very uh, forward. <laughs> Shameless, perhaps? Shame, shame. Incautious. Uh, uh, yes. All Shameless the, is a good word. Incautious isn't bad. Look, don't sell yourself short. No, it's it can be a lot of things. It's multi-determined. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> and it doesn't go well for them in the end, does it? Well, it's funny. Michael is skulking around them while they're doing it. My, I found it to be one of the most disturbing images in the whole movie when they're making out on the couch and he just steps into frame and he's, what, 10 feet away from them, just watching them and they have no idea he's there. That was disturbing to me. How many scenes where Michael is just standing there watching something is disturbing and, and that might be the, 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 the peak moment 
in terms of him being disturbing just by standing there watching. A lot of contenders for that honor in this film. But yeah, this could be mm. the pinnacle. We talked about this in our in our first uh, autopsy of it, that Michael seems to be getting progressively closer. Like at this point, this is the first time we see him inside the house of any of the our kind of main characters. He never goes inside the house when Aunt, when he's stalking Annie. There is this sense that Michael is far away, but getting closer and closer and closer, uh, which is really going to culminate with the sort of post-Bob murder sheet scene, uh, which I still have issues with. But uh, I agree that, that it, it's really unsettling because it, like the best horror movies, you get this sense of like, could this happen in my house? Like, am I sitting on the couch and there could be somebody in another room and I don't know? There definitely could be. Probably is. Mm-hmm. Right now, Vic. Fuck. Who is that guy behind you? <laughs> that would be fucking scary. <laughs> that would. That would. The circling shark idea is what you're referring to there. Yeah, it's very cool. But do you feel like the sexuality, you can't actually say sex because I think, you know, it's Annie, you know, having to take off her clothes and stuff. It does seem like that suggestion of, of sexuality is what sets Michael off, no pun intended. Do you get that sense here? I mean, is that like, is this, does this reinforce that or is it just a coincidence? Definitely his MO, I guess, is tied to, his origin story, I should say, is tied to sexuality. Before he commits his first murder, he glances at the bed where his sister just had sex, right? So that's definitely part of it. And, and But I was coming around to the idea of Michael as, like I know I said last time, one thing that bothered me a lot about this movie, um, one particular detail, was when the Forbidden Planet soundtrack is playing while he's carrying a girl. And I just that threw me out of it, didn't work. It felt like a a joke and it, it, just, it just threw me out of it completely. This time though, when I rewatched it just a couple hours ago, uh, that did work for me. And I started to think, so why is Forbidden Planet so much a part of this movie? And why is the thing so much a part of this movie? And both of those have something in common where the monster doesn't really have a shape of its own. But in the thing, right, it mimics dangerous things that's come across in the universe. And it's studied the universe and it's turning into replicas of those things to, to kill with. And in Forbidden Planet, not to, you know, spoiler alert, mm-hmm. there's a machine that manifests your id as a monster. If you start looking at Michael as like a manifestation of id or as sort of like you look at him as an empty shell, that at some point his soul was emptied out, like Loomis says, and there's just nothing in there. There's pure evil in there now, something so evil that it doesn't even have a form of its own. So it's just in this shell of Michael Myers, and it's studying the world and looking for ways to hurt it as much as possible. What would this pure evil do it would do what michael's doing it's walking around studying things looking at things and then it's striking at what seems to be the most lively part of the world which is all these horny teens basically right that's kind of in keeping with the idea that i was talking about last time of it just being like this mischievous is maybe too kind of a word but this malevolent halloween spirit that is yeah roaming down on halloween and interacting in a malicious manner with the people that are celebrating but vulnerable on this evening you know getting into right. their um, it so to speak on this view yeah that's well that's I, on this feeling i was really coming around to that way of looking at it and uh and and it helped me a lot frame like how i felt about michael and how i felt about sex 
equaling death, essentially, in this movie. At some point, I said on one of these previous shows that I was editing recently that I don't think of Jason as being a truly a sexual being, like a frustrated sexual being. I don't think he's he never reached that level of, yes, you have the, you know, part three or whatever, where he he rapes a woman off screen or, you know, there's the implication of that. But I don't think true sexuality frustrated sexuality is as much a part of it for jason as it is for michael that's what i i really did kind of come into this process thinking that michael has this hang up with his sister and that that somehow it it wasn't just that he was being neglected on halloween or at other times but there was something about her sexuality that that triggers him but i i will honestly say vic to your question and and just in general i'm not sure where i stand right now about this because i am kind of getting behind the idea of the empty vessel and the malicious halloween spirit and all of these things you know versus kind of traditional curdled sexuality frustrated uh, sexuality aspect. So, I mean, I, I think that that is kind of one of the rich ambiguities of these films and of the character. We've been talking about these movies for a long time. And honestly, I, I don't, I don't think I'm any closer to a definitive view than I was at the beginning. I find that to be the least interesting reading of the movie. Like I much the the idea that that Michael is is sort of repressed sexuality is triggered by half yeah. teenagers. Um, that seems you know it's it's the kind of psychology that was new and interesting and deep when Hitchcock made Psycho. But by the time we get here, and there's there's so many other weird layers to this. I like all the other layers there's you know what i mean like all the every every other explanation feels different and more interesting to me than than that because it's just like you said like that's such a sort of rote reading of uh, a slasher film Uh, i can see again it's, it's not that there isn't evidence for it but if there's ambiguity that gives you wiggle room to pick something else i'm picking something else yeah, yes. I don't think he's got like a psychology about sex, like in Vertigo or something. I think it's more like he, well, this is just a hypothesis. I'm not sure I'm settling on this for all time, but just more the idea that he'd be as pure evil, the negation of life. He wants to negate life. And what he's seeing as he walks around the world is the most life seems to be coming from these horny teens. That is that is where he sees the most life energy and that's what he wants to snuff out and that does fit with the what we've talked about in terms of how he seems to be choosing his victims that he's he stalks and thinks about i'm following tommy but no not tommy and this kid just ran into me i'm gonna leave him alone Lori, there's something about Lori that really draws him in and so yeah you might be you you might be right about that that's a that's a really interesting reading i'm gonna i'm gonna Bear that in mind when I watch this for the 75th time. (laughs) (laughs) I, as well, something about that um, resonates with me, and it's it's something I'll think about. So, awesome. Specifically back to the scene, unlike Jason in part two, where he interrupts the sexual act by putting the spear through the lover's bodies and the bed, 
Michael elects to let them finish. He draws it out some more. And of course, he's doing that a lot in this movie, drawing out his kills, circling his victims, messing with their heads kind of slowly in stages. And so he, he, he as you mentioned, Vic, he's in the house at this point, but still does not pull the trigger, uh, so to speak, on on hurting anyone just yet. And meanwhile, Bob intends to return for more sex after they're done this time. He's a lot more randy than the last person to make love to a woman in front of Michael. If, as far as we know, Judith's boyfriend was the last person to do so, I guess some mental hospital personnel could have gotten it on. And in this film franchise, you can pretty much guarantee that they did. But uh, to our knowledge, no. And But meanwhile, Bob's going to go into the fridge for more beer. We get more Michael stalking. I think this is my nominee for the best timing of a jump scare, a a legitimate jump scare, not a cat jumping out of a closet or something or a rain gutter breaking a window. The way that this times out where Bob notices the door is open and then he goes and he closes the, the door to the outside, like the window door, patio door kind of a thing. And but there's like three doors involved to really misdirect the audience before Michael actually makes his move. It's just such a well-timed kill and you're not ready when the killer actually strikes here. Even if you're on the edge of your seat, trying to brace yourself for that very moment. And of course we get the sheer strength of Michael lifting Bob, no small guy up to the ceiling, you know, practically. And he gives Bob just one, perfect kill shot in the heart it seems except as has been pointed out probably i i I, as i recall by this show even the long shot indicates the knife is probably under bob's rib cage not in the heart and you can still see a little blade sticking out so how it's actually the knife is keeping bob pinned to the wall I am not sure. I think, Vic, you might have mentioned that before. But putting aside the physics of this and how he would be suspended in this position, it's a super cool shot. And I will throw it back to you guys after commenting that this is a double head tilt for Michael as he examines his handiwork. You might even be, you could call it three or four, depending on how you count these head tilts. And I had forgotten how long the shot goes on. And I I'm confident that no other iteration of the Michael Myers head tilt has this many actual tilts in it. <laughs> it's sad that the, I feel like the franchise has, has taken all the steam out of this because it is so perfectly done. Like I said, in terms of Michael Myers, not being quite a blank slate, but having the these this sort of outline sketched in of who he is this is one of the the darkest lines in that sketch if you want to know something about michael myers watch this moment and you'll see a little bit of it i also had a a, a thought is you know it would be uh, amusing to me if michael was was like timing the sexual encounters to see if he was going to kill them like if it was like if the guy gets over 2 minutes i'm going to let him go You know, you get that opening POV shot where the boyfriend's up there and you actually get Michael, like, looking at his watch. (laughs) You know? 
<laughs> like that guy didn't stand a chance. Bob came close, but no, if he couldn't get past the two minute mark, he's gonna go. So it's their their own sexual inadequacy that dooms them. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Perfect timing, I believe Rich is back with us. Uh, though, of course, I want to give Luke a chance to weigh in on the, the the Bob being pinned like a butterfly to a board. But we're just about to the ghost costume sequence here. So, uh, yeah, Luke, uh, any thoughts on this iconic moment with the head tilts and so on? It was only on uh, tonight's viewing that I noticed how long he watches, how how long he studies the corpse he just made, and that it's disturbingly long. Um, but also, it's a good character note. You're starting; he's learning or observing his impact on the world. Maybe I don't know what's going on exactly there, but uh, but that is something that I found myself really thinking about. It feels consistent with the theory that you just advanced, doesn't it? Almost like an alien, in a sense, you know? Yeah, I didn't I didn't want to put too much of a science fiction twist on it, but both those movies were science fiction movies, so that kind of got me shifted into a, mm-hmm. looking at it that way. But um, I, So I don't think it is a science fiction... I think it's supernatural, not science. But, uh, but all the same, yeah, I think in, still... inhuman perspective. Yeah, exactly. Well said. Thank you. The infamous, in, in Vic's mind, uh, sequence where it does change our conception of the Michael Myers character to have Michael walk into the room, the bedroom that Linda is in, in this ghost costume. And like Friday the 13th Part 2, this is one of those moments where the toolbox that the slasher killer has at their disposal is overflowing in a way that you don't get in later films like the idea that this this michael drives constantly and would put on a bed sheet and bob's glasses you know threatens your paradigm of what you thought the character's limitations were all the fancy wrenches and screwdrivers in the toolbox that the first jason and the first michael have they become sparse in the future movies but in this one he's driving around and dressing up like someone's boyfriend in a in a ghost costume and, and and stuff like that to be honest like i have pretty uh ambivalent feelings about the ghost scene so i'm, I'm eager to let vic just rip on that one um <laughs> i did want to you know coming in at the butterfly pinned to a board kind of be you know you you raise an interesting question there which is that it's obviously such an indelible moment in horror and one that many fans can can reach for and and recall i guess it's like what is it really saying like you're saying there's something alien about it uh, almost dog-like i'm sure someone pointed out and it seems to at the very least imply a certain amount of curiosity what are we led to believe that that curiosity is stemming from as a as a character that this is essentially like a a a violent child in a state of of arrested development because like you said it's like he goes on to mimic the 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 bedsheet and he's go, you know he's he's driving around in a, in a car he's definitely a a character who is sort of aware of the world and how to get around in it he's killed before and recently so, like, what is he getting out of this moment? Like, when he does the the head tilt, other than it's sort of being a 
cool antagonistic thing to do what is the novelty of this like with all the shit this guy's already done okay the dude is suspended in the air but are we really just meant to believe that he's like wow did i do that that's really cool or or what like that is that is the question what makes it what what conjures this almost contemplative reaction from him in that moment it's almost like there's a kind of innocence to it in a way now he's not surprised the guy's dead but then looking at it somehow he's struck by it there's some aspect of it that he didn't fully appreciate until after it happens and now he wants to examine it i almost think a pov would have been good there because you're leading me to believe or wonder it might be the aesthetic of it somehow like any oh. kind of art you know like just looking at the image that he created he's kind of like there's something i i don't think beautiful would be the word he would use but you know he's struck by the i hate to say tableau but uh he's struck by the art installation that he just created <laughs> in the moment <laughs> That makes sense. He definitely has an artistic sense. Like in a few minutes, he's about to set up a whole tombstone and, and candles and stuff around. Exactly. Um, so there you go. I think this is the perfect level of ambiguity. I think any answer you, you give to this makes it less disturbing. Like if you could if you could nail down what it actually like, what he's actually seeing or what's actually struck him about it, it wouldn't be it wouldn't have the same impact. It works because what the fuck is he looking at? Like, what is it about this that is connecting with him? It's that that question is what's so upsetting. I don't think the answer is. That's really well said. It's awesome that you go from such a startling kill to something even more disturbing in some ways than the kill. Something that's like a kill you can understand. But his contemplating it afterwards, it really just lies like a little bit outside of what you can possibly wrap your mind around. You don't know what's going on. And to connect with something John said earlier, the perfect moment of silence. You just yes. let that quiet hang there while he does that. Yeah. Yeah, it's one of the more chilling moments in the film, definitely. Vic, do you hate the ghost thing because it's too comedic or and or is it inconsistent with the Michael we've already met in this film? Because that's all that matters. Listening back to the first podcast, I feel like you and Mike kind of sold me on this as this is this is Michael's perverse imitation of being normal, that this is the closest that he gets to another person. It's the only time he interacts with another person that he's not actively trying to stab. There's some information that's supposed to be gleaned from that. And you guys really sold me on that. And then I watched it again, and it still it still just doesn't work. <laughs> it's the it's like the anti it's like the anti version of the opposite of the moment we just talked about with the perfect amount of ambiguity. Like I can't imagine what's going on in Michael's head when he does this, and it's the glasses. It's the glasses. Like that's the thing that drives me crazy because it looks so silly. And I just like I try to imagine Michael like putting the sheet over and then putting the reaching outside the sheet and putting the glasses on. I don't see it. I don't buy it. I don't get it. I don't know. It's it's the opposite. 
it's the opposite of that what we were just talking about with the kill scene from a humor perspective it's the opposite of the very naturalistic and, and, and great moment with Loomis when he scares off the kids it's awkward and fumbling and, and obvious it doesn't last long is the best thing I can say about it. do you think that he got the sheet from the linen closet and then had to draw the holes on before he cut them for his eyes or do you think he just supernaturally knew exactly where to cut eye holes in the sheet <laughs> That's a good question. I would chalk this up to the this somewhat shapeshiftery Halloween mask idea that we've seen him wear a clown mask. He found this other mask. This is the third guys we've seen him take in this film. So I think that by now you you can argue that he's established that he has a bit of a doppelganger thing to him. And like, yeah, we certainly don't have any reason to think that like the main mask he wears is overly significant to him at this point. He's affecting this guys in order to get a little bit closer to her than he would otherwise be able to do. And you could say it's a reasonable escalation of the stalking in that, like Vic was saying, he gets closer and closer and closer and this allows him to continue stalking her all the way to the point where they're in the same room and she's aware he's there. And he still gets to draw this out and just observe her a little bit longer. It's kind of consistent with his M.O. as we've seen it develop in the course of this film that he he takes pleasure this michael especially takes pleasure in getting so fucking close that all you have to do is turn around and you'll see him but you don't he gets off on the proximity that's how i can sort of justify it here i think on that podcast not that i've re-listened to it but i think my argument was more like there's some I don't know, correct me if I'm wrong, Vic, but an effort or at least a desire to connect in some way, even if he knows he can't. So he's trying to connect through a persona of someone else, because that's the only way he'll be able to do so is by pretending to be someone else. Yeah, that was about the gist of it. He's actually impersonating Bob, who he knows got close to her. So, yeah. Yeah. Something else that wouldn't fly in a movie today is that Linda decides that after this person in the sheet staring silent at, silently at her for a really uncomfortably long amount of time, that she's just going to turn her back on this guy and uh, make a phone call. Yeah, obviously this has to be my boyfriend uh, and not some whack job. And, and, and I was struck by the thought that today's audiences would not buy that that reaction, but... Nonetheless, the music kicks in here as Michael makes his move on Linda. I realized that this is not a prank call for Michael. It's basically an accident that as he murders, in my opinion, you guys let me know if you feel differently. It's an accident that as he murders Linda, Lori experiences the murder as a phone call. It doesn't seem to me that that's premeditated by Michael that, oh, yeah, I'll kill Linda and uh, the person I'm really stalking, Lori, will hear it. Presumably, Michael hasn't manipulated Linda into involving Lori in her murder. And I will add that there's some more eye work from PJ Souls in this kill. 
I'm starting to think like women slowly choking in a close up feels like almost a vaudevillian thing, like an old fashioned. Like I haven't watched a ton of old movies recently, but it, it, it feels like maybe an old, old school kind of choice to have the eyes rolling around and all that stuff. Uh, this is one of the ways that the movie is showing its age to me here. The vague allusion to it sounding like a dirty phone call, we talked a lot about this with Black Christmas, is relevant and sort of fits with her thinking, oh, like, is this a crank phone call? Again, it still leaves this these room this room for Lori to feel doubt, right? That maybe maybe everything's still fine. Right. Like it's maybe this is still a rational, sane world. It's probably just Linda and Bob screwing around with me, which sort of makes sense, both with their personalities. And as we said that, you know, in the 70s, like women were getting gross phone calls from people breathing heavily into the phone. It's another one where I get it, but it's it's not in the annals of great uh, horror kills, great slasher film kills, to be sure. I was wondering, though, if you've ever worn someone else's glasses, you really get a headache pretty fast. <laughs> Michael got a headache from wearing Bob's oh, glasses, and that's why he killed it. <laughs> oh, Vic. <laughs> there was a setup, a due credit where it's deserved. Like, I'm not really concerned with Lori's reaction to this, but... Uh, she got the call early in the film where I think it's Annie, maybe it's Linda, but I think it's Annie who's eating while she's talking. And so there, there's some effort put into the setup that Lori would get a call where she's just hearing breathing or something and think that it's Linda or Annie eating or, you know, fucking with her or whatever. So that 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 track was laid for this beat. <laughs> Not the only okay. track that was laid, John. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> nice, Vic. All right. So we know it's down to Lori now because Loomis and the sheriff are staking out the wrong place. The kids are in bed and Linda is dead. We, Lori is going to soon discover Michael is making his way over there. But Loomis spots the stolen station wagon, the brown, not green, stolen station wagon uh, that's been parked across the street this whole time. Um, And he's had a lot of chances to spot it in this movie, but he finally gets it. So we know the cavalry is coming and we see that Lori is uh, the kind of girl who brings knitting to her babysitting gig. She's a real party animal uh, that will come into play soon enough. The knitting needle, of course. But uh, again, we take our time following following Lori from one house to the other. The other house is a death house now. And uh, the low-key musical motif kicks in. Uh, so ominous. And I like that Michael has turned the place into a house of horrors for Lori. Uh, he's created a Halloween maze for her to walk through. And we do have characters calling out names in this movie. Uh, It's not above that horror movie trope as she's calling Linda, Bob, Annie, whoever, all of the above. Uh, We're milking that as Laurie goes through the house. 
and it's building the suspense. We're waiting for something to happen. There's one light on in the house, and that is behind the door, I believe. Michael makes a show of Annie on this bed under the tombstone. It's a very iconic image. Let's talk about the tableau, guys. Uh, Luke, do you do you like this big reveal of Michael's masterwork? I have mixed feelings. I'll be honest. The the funhouse nature of it doesn't 100% work for me because it just depends too much on her backing into the exact right corner after you know the sequence of events that yeah. she has to go through. To I find myself questioning it, but um, and then I find myself questioning like, well, do Michael's supernatural powers extend to making sure that? The door with Linda behind it opens at the exact right moment. Yeah. On another level, it, it does work. It's it's the big grand finale. All the fireworks going off at the same time. Um, and, and that's pretty great. So I have mixed feelings about it. I really do. He's curious dog when it comes to stabbing the guy against the wall. Sorry, I forgot his name already. He's, he's, he's already dead to me. He's a man who is who possesses a tremendous amount of execution when it comes to production value. You know, like timing misdirection like leading the audience like like he's a born showman <laughs> because you're yes. right he, he walks her he walks her straight there the crossing of the street like you're, you're getting into the house of horrors but the the way that we actually get to this house eventually is you know and we're not necessarily done with this but the way that they lay out the geography of this neighborhood is so well done i think partly just because of the way that they shoot it on a on a pivot that you really get to actually get like memorize where these houses are in relation to each other and it's interesting i was reading another write-up of this film and i was talking about the influence and weirdly like the third film it mentioned was stage fright which mm. i like i can't recall seeing stage fright mentioned anywhere other than john's list at the beginning of this conversation <laughs> <laughs> and, and i really i really really enjoyed stage fright and i remember just like one of the things that we kept fawning over were like you actually know where you are in in, the, in every like scene even though you're in this like claustrophobic backstage environment and i really do think that that's something that 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 movie carried over from this was like having the characters really walk you through the the map of the film so that then when you get to the situation where where Lori's being walked through the house of horrors and eventually up to the to the tableau you're not just watching someone randomly fumble about a bunch of like unfamiliar locations until they land in, in their in the right place and in that case like I'm willing to accept that Michael actually was able to lay out her path here because like we've been taught the lay of the land like we like understand that there's a a, a rhyme and a reason to this geography um and that ultimately you know like this is the path that, that she would follow it just all feels connected like there's a real sense of geography in this film that i think lends it a certain amount of power and uh for that i'll give it a pass to like that geography that map ultimately leads her up to this room I touched on that wall before you you jumped on a, on the call tonight that uh, I do like the the relationship of the two houses and how close they are and how they play with that it, it is it is very cool but does anybody have anything to say about like and I, I don't I don't know that I do but I'm throwing it out there the tombstone itself and its significance I don't know Vic if we covered that extensively on our first pod but um, like obviously it's a big choice on his part to bring it in here. This isn't the Myers house. He brings the 
his sister's tombstone and he puts it next to another young woman's half naked body like clearly this is a big statement from michael right and we should at least give it some credence or speculation this is another example for me of the the ambiguity of the film being just right i think this is the best tableau the most striking and effective tableau in any of the slasher films that we watched including all the friday the 13th movies and everything else this to me speaks to what's going on in michael behind his mask it is therefore sort of horrifying when we talked about our first uh, autopsy there was some talk of whether this was something that he had prepared for lori he wanted her to see like is this a a way of him kind of reaching out which is fascinating to think about but i do like it better as just an expression of what's inside his head for him there is some connection between the people that he's murdering and his sister and he has this violent image that he wants to to create i mean very much like a a serial killer. I mean, it's got a very Thomas Harris, Red Dragon kind of feel where the killer puts glass or mirrors in the eyeballs of his victims or Hannibal Lecter when he strings up the guy after he steals his face with his, with his, you know, inside sort of splayed open. So this, this feels more like a sort of traditional serial killer in that it's an expression of something that's happening in him. But it's something that's so twisted, that's so alien, that I don't think you can really... I think it's scarier if you can't really understand it, if you can't quite pinpoint what all the connections are. I think it's better if you're like, what fucking crazy, twisted, fucked up mind would do this? That's certainly how I felt the first few times I watched it. Now, I enjoy trying to analyze it with you guys, but the ambiguity of it, leaving that ambiguity there, makes the movie more effective to me. Yeah, rather than A plus B equals C with this character's psychology. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Clearly, it's a message, but it's not a clear message. You don't know what it's it's spelling (laughs) out of his interior life, and that's great. That really is great. Um, Yeah, if, if if you knew exactly what he meant by it, it wouldn't have the same power. There's something about the fact that, you know, she's in the sort of like the, the crucifixion pose. There's mm-hmm. a quality to the lighting about it that like, you know, obviously we we couldn't have known this then. But like this whole thing, this looks like if you had to capture like the, the design aesthetic of like a spirit Halloween store in one <laughs> shot. This is it. You know, I mean, like you have the classic jack-o'-lantern, you have that like bluish purple lighting. I can't get over how much the gravestone looks like it's made out of styrofoam. The fact <laughs> that it makes no sense propped up on a bed where it is like that would clearly topple and sink on whatever it is that's supporting it. So it's like, I, I don't know. And I remember this from when I at least initially saw this film that something about this always like strikes me as a little bit phony. And none of that, I think necessarily contradicts anything you just said, but it's not my favorite element of the movie. You don't do this as Michael unless you're trying to draw a line between Judith and this person. And you are you are making this statement, let's not forget what happened to Judith. 
and there there is some commonality that he is calling our attention to Lori's attention to and, and i think that is kind of indisputable in going to the great trouble of lugging this thing here and positioning it in this way but exactly what that significance is yeah we could go right back down the path of well what do these two girls have in common and all of that i don't think we have to do that but but clearly he is drawing a line uh between them can i rich can i ask you would it have worked better for you if they had made the stone look a little weathered and they had shown you know michael pushing a dolly earlier or something like just so, <laughs> to make the set it up a little better and make it look a little more properly art directed would it have worked better for you or still no I just imagine Michael like has one of those kind of video game backpacks where it's like you were just carrying <laughs> like an, an, an impressive, like endless, in, infinite inventory that you can just pull this thing out of and put it back into. Yeah. Maybe the Myers got her a styrofoam headstone. Like, <laughs> yes. Ah. They didn't like Judith very much. It, so sadly, what's the sadly cheapest headstone move. you have? <laughs> and it was at the Spirit Halloween store. And they were like, we have this styrofoam head stuff. Just because we're bereaved doesn't mean we're saps. <laughs> <laughs> uh, haven't dropped a big Lebowski line on this podcast in a while. Okay, so Bob is in the room as well. Like, Michael makes a, a show of Annie, and then, yeah, Bob is hung upside down in the closet in, in, in classic um, slasher fashion. But he doesn't get any star treatment. And then I think PJ Souls is in a closet or, you know, she's tucked onto a shelf or something. Mm-hmm. And she's got with, crossed eyes. <laughs> I was going to say with more strong eye acting. Yes. <laughs> yes. You, you, you're you reading my mind there, Rich. The crossed eyes. It just, oh, she doesn't look dead. This is not fantastic stuff, guys. I, I just don't don't love that at all. But what is great here is that we don't think of Lori as some kind of superhero. Like, we haven't built her up to such a degree that we're thinking she's just going to kick his ass. And we know right here or very shortly after, Michael is done playing with her now. Like, everybody else is dead. He's staged the tableau. She's seen it. Now, Lori's time is up, and he's serious about killing her, we can uh, presume. And if Lori, this character that, you know, certainly we're on her side, we care about, uh, even if we can pick apart her handling of A Thousand Warnings, which is what I've been doing all night, uh, we want her to beat Michael, we want her to beat death, we want her to beat fate, and survive. I just want to draw attention real quick to like, like we, we were just sort of like in praise of the tableau. And so then these two are just like leftover props basically, because you described yeah. Bob as you described Bob as being like in typical slasher movie fashion. I mean, the, the man is hanging from, from his knees from what I can tell. Um, and has clearly been, his torso has somehow been suspended in a way where it can be released and flopped in a doorway upside down. Like, that is not <laughs> typical of, of anything. Um, and, yeah, and but, like, like, the hanging body swinging in is what I mean. But, you know, I, like, mean oh, I mean, yeah. sure. I'm just, I'm, I'm just saying, like, he went, he went from, like, a statement, then he was like, what do I do with this guy? And he's like, well, I guess I can do that. this cool shtick. 
And right. you know, then and then like and then he's like, oh right. And then I have this other one to deal with. I guess I'll just like shove her in a closet. Like it just <laughs> his vision becomes like decreasingly, you know, pointed as this goes on. Like once he uses the tombstone. Yeah, like like I was saying, like Annie, man, like she is the centerpiece of this of this tableau. Yeah, you know, the other two are just like afterthoughts. Like oh, I don't know what I'm gonna do with them. Well, they're in the background. This feels like an like a like a outtake from Behind the Mask, The Rise of Leslie Vernon. You know, where he's like <laughs> yeah. he's trying to get the guy up behind the closet, like opens the door, he hurts his back. He's like, oh shit! <laughs> God, or like you know, sometimes you've got a great idea for a tableau, but you happen to kill a couple other people that you weren't planning on. You're like, fuck. Well, what am I gonna do? Just hang them up in a closet, dude. That always works. That'll be fine. And then you know, you can just somebody on a shelf that works yeah i do think it's kind of clever for mike uh to lock the door uh from the other side in a way that makes sense with laurie like he uses this rake to to pin that uh patio door we keep seeing over and over down and i think it's in the kitchen and uh it, it is obviously a flimsy looking plane of glass like all the windows in haddonfield are apparently flimsy uh, Lori does struggle ineffectually for quite some time before reaching the conclusion that she can just bust that pane of glass and remove the rake. Uh, but we get a lot of like uh, serious. I don't want to, you know, not give credit where credit's due. Serious suspense as Michael is closing in on her before she makes that fairly obvious move to escape the house. So she gets her head right, though, and she knows if she's going to be slow on the uptake and weak and fearful, she's she's screwed, and so are the kids. So we, we get this kind of gradual, believable progression in Lori as she's overcoming her own weaknesses as as each of these tests unfold. The character arc is over one night, uh, and she, in my opinion, was blowing test after test earlier on. Now she finds her composure, and I do buy it because you know she had it in her all along to be competent and capable and level-headed and smart. Uh, because yeah, the movie you know did its job setting her up in that way, and Jamie Lee Curtis projects that. So I think that all works. The smart move again was to sacrifice Lindsay, and she and Tommy run next door. <laughs> Well, she never swore to keep Lindsay safe from the boogie. Right? Man. That's what I'm yeah. saying. Yeah. <laughs> Lindsay's parents aren't paying her. She has no <laughs> obligations there at all. I'm surprised she didn't just shove Lindsay into Michael's path <laughs> at some strategic moment. <laughs> Tie some bells to her. Tell her to run the circles around the upstairs. <laughs> Uh, so Michael has seems to have cut the phone line at the other house because uh, we're making uh, Lori's making her way away from the death house back to the house where Tommy and Lindsay are hiding. The first skirmish with Michael feels a little cheap and easy. And I'm talking about the knitting needle here. This is the first time. She stabs him with this knitting needle when he reaches over the couch and all that, you know, stuff that I hope everyone is very intimately familiar with. And he goes into a playing possum mode for the first of several times. 
or you can assume that this is a, a legit knockout at this point. And Laurie just puts him down for a while. It's 1-0 Laurie after the first round. The staging is not great. Michael's swing with the knife is unimpressive. This is the repeated and unforgivable slasher movie trope of, look, he's down. He must be dead. You know, pick up a fucking lamp and smash him in the head. You you keep firing on the target until the target is destroyed, I believe is the the military go-to. If nothing else, this is one of the originators of the trope. So, you know, you get points for originality, I guess, even if it's a stupid trope. As a kid, hearing about this scene at the bus stop, as I said, you know, the the, mm-hmm. the bigger kids told us, recounted this movie in detail. Her jabbing him in the neck with the knitting needle was an uh, absolute key moment. And I could see it in my head the way it was told by the 11-year-olds or 12-year-olds. Um, so when I actually saw it in real life, uh, it, it almost it didn't live up to the image in my head. But uh, but it, but those stories came flooding back for sure. Of, of Wow. So I, so I know that this movie had an absolute impact on uh, 12 year olds of the era. This on set photography book that I keep referencing tonight had a great image uh, of him grabbing that knitting needle stabbed in his neck and. One of the things that this woman just always seemed to capture that I don't think you get a ton in the movie is just like his staring eyes, which I remember from yeah various publicity photos over the years. Um, and and I'm, I'm a little split on because Michael's like almost like the absence of eyes is often very scary as well as, you know, seeing his actual, you know, human eyeballs glaring out from the mask. But um, both can be very effective. And I I don't think anyone's mentioned this uh, recently. The combination of actors playing him in this movie, you know, we always talk about how many actors are playing these masked killers in in various iterations of the film, certainly in Friday the 13th Part uh, 2. We had even like the costume designer, a woman was playing him uh, for one scene. Nick Castle is the one where he's doing like close-up type stuff. And then Tommy Lee Wallace is playing him when he breaks shit, because I believe Wallace's job in this film was production design and stuff like that. So he knew all the points on the door that you could put your hand through and how to break the flimsy windows and doors and walls and stuff. Um, in a way that wouldn't get you hurt and would look good on camera. So they used him for for all of those shots. Loomis, we cut back to him, and it's kind of comical. He's wandering this neighborhood. Loomis's experience of this film is kind of a waiting for Godot kind of a thing. Where's Michael? When's Michael going to show up? He's getting close, folks. He's getting close. Loomis is about to encounter Michael at last. The next big set piece... Vic was talking about in our Friday the 13th autopsy at the end that you just kind of keep playing the same scene over and over from different angles with, you know, changing some elements of the scenario in the climax. In this one, Laurie again runs and hides and Michael shows up and they have a skirmish. And the next big one is the closet, which is obviously, I think, a great little little set piece as she turns a hanger into a weapon. And I think this is her first 
real win that she has to be ingenious enough and composed enough with this guy terrorizing her and destroying the closet door to, you know, fashion a weapon uh, on the fly out of this hanger and get him. I think I said stabbed him in the eye with the knitting needle, but no, no, you're right. That was the neck. And, but he get she gets him in the eye with the, the hanger. Right. And this is her first big step towards true final girldom. And it feels right. Uh, and she gets the knife away from him and then she stabs him and another technical knockout. Michael's down for the count. She gets out of there for the moment. If this is kind of like rinsing and repeating the same interaction between the two of them, it's very functional. You know, again, this this kind of goes back to the modus operandi of this film, which is that it doesn't have that many pursuits and executions in it. And so it really teases out and makes the makes the most of them. And, you know, if if Annie was a test run you know, essentially like this is the, this is the main feature. Like this is them really sort of like putting down this like endless pursuit to its most deliberate means. It's loaded with iconic images that we're going to come to associate with Michael. Like, you know, after this is where he sits up in the back of the frame, which is something we all, you know, have burned into our brains, right? It's a little bit tighter than Friday the 13th part two. We don't have as much travel time. (laughs) <laughs> I think of the the like fading images of her running and Jason running and then her running and then Jason running. Yeah. Montage. Yeah. Um, I'm also find myself thinking this time, which is something I, I really don't think I had ever thought about before, but given what we know about how the movie ends, is there anything Lori could have done differently that really would have mattered? I mean, it was I was just giving her shit for, okay, you stabbed him in the neck. Now throw a lamp on his head. But apparently if she shot him six times, he still would have gotten up. So maybe we should cut Laurie some slack here. <laughs> so it's not, I'm not sure there's, it was really, there was really anything she could do, right? I said in some podcast that uh, decapitation is pretty much your best bet. You know, yeah. if somehow well, you okay, can decapitate fair. one of these guys, the, yeah. the only thing they can do at that point is recast, you know, like yeah. the, we've never seen the guy just pick up the head and just put it back on and and keep coming after you. Though I wouldn't be surprised if it happens at some point. That's fair. The problem is that Laurie doesn't know Kung Fu. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone knows that that's his weakness. If only she was watching Sonny Chiba movies instead of The Thing from Another World. Yes. Oh, man. Uh, that, uh, that takes me back. That was, uh, Rich's first, uh, episode, I believe was, I think was, you're right. Uh, yeah. Halloween resurrection, mm-hmm. the immortal Halloween resurrection. Indeed. I just want to highlight one of my favorite moments in the movie, and maybe it's kind of the pedestrian moment, but it really worked for me before she ends up in the closet, which is obviously great, great cinema. There's a moment where she's knocking on a neighbor's door screaming for help and they turn the lights and then they turn the lights off. And I love that moment. That to me is yeah. up there with the car screeching to a halt and you don't know what the rules are anymore. This is where you realize like this neighborhood was maybe never the good place that you thought it was. Your neighbors are not coming to help you. You are on your own. You didn't know it before, but now you know it. You can't that's you can't put that out of your mind anymore. I think that's a great moment. And uh, yeah. it affected me a lot the first time I saw it. I just was so mad at those neighbors for not opening the door and helping her. They could have saved her easily, or at least they wouldn't have because then he would have come through their window or something. But um, but it seemed like they could have helped, and they didn't even try. 
Yeah, that's this like chilling sociological Kitty Genovese <laughs> moment, uh, you know, where that is one of the more low-key disturbing aspects of the film. And I think you're absolutely right. It just dispels the whole illusion of safety uh, in the suburbs. And yeah, it's quite damning, really. But meanwhile, the kids are running out, the screaming kids. This is the break that Loomis has been waiting for. Now he's going to sweep in. And I actually do think he saves the day because Lori, the third time that Michael gets up, like, I think she's done. Uh, I get the strong sense that she's done. She starts kind of cowering at this point. And we get this glimpse of Michael under the mask and he's got this weird eye. It's always thrown me makes him look to me a little Jason, like, like there's a little prosthetic going on. I guess maybe it's supposed to be his injury from the hanger, but it, it going into his eye earlier in the, in the closet scene, but it kind of strikes me as a deformity of some kind, but it's a very brief, weirdly lit shot. So that could be just entirely subjective. I mean, the, the thing about the eye is, interesting i guess i hadn't come across that explanation but i read it as a deformity and i feel like it's a it was a bad choice for this because you don't need to dehumanize this character like they've they've kind of gone out of their way to not dehumanize this character but to instead make him the fact that he's like the, kind of like the, the blank slate of an average human being that makes him terrifying and that little glimpse of his face, while might make good for sort of, you know, horror movie fodder, takes away from, I think, something, a little bit of a mythology that they built here. Yeah, I agree. Like, there is no explanation at all for their otherwise, other than this injury, for him looking weird at all. Because we know he was a normal looking kid. And this is only X numbers yeah. of years later. At the bus stop, when... Uh when they told me that uh, his mask got pulled off. I remember, I remember asking breathlessly, well, what did his face look like? And they, and big kids said, just normal, normal face. And that struck me as impossible. There's no mm -hmm. way he had a normal face. He must have been deformed and crazy looking. <laughs> uh, so when I watched it though, I, I didn't notice that his eye was messed up. To me, he, it looked like a normal face. Um, mm. And that's definitely a better choice than, than if he was deformed. So yeah, I totally agree with that. Vic, I remember you saying, like, it's always, in a previous podcast, it's always disappointing when you see the mask, the face under the mask. Nothing that they show could possibly live up to what your mind has conjured. And so you're, this is one of, those, one of those, those instances where more ambiguity is better. They should, this is, this is a mistake. I get why they did it, and it, but it, and it becomes such a trope of the, the genre in many ways. I mean, Jason gets his mask ripped off in the first four movies as he gets progressively more deformed. Always at the end, and it's, you know, the, the, I feel like the further they go, the more they linger on it. But that at least has some shock value. And I get what Luke is saying, right? Like the, I think the shock for this is, oh, he's just normal. I mean, he's shaven. Who the fuck can that guy have a razor? <laughs> Weirdly, and this is, this is the only time I'll ever say this. I may have said that. I don't remember. I may have said this the first time we talked about it. But it reminds me of the moment at the end of the Joel Schumacher, Nicolas Cage masterpiece, 8mm. Uh, 
which is not a masterpiece, but mm-hmm. it does no. end with a, a character known as the machine who makes snuff films being unmasked in a rage by Nicolas Cage. And as this kind of dumpy, you know, balding middle-aged guy with glasses is there, you know, is crawling away from him. Nicholas Cage is frozen. And the guy says, what did you expect? A monster? Mm. It's actually a really powerful moment in what is otherwise a terrible film. The problem is it, this, this moment has none of that impact. I feel like they're going for sort of the same idea, but it doesn't land. You should have left the mask on. Vic, I want to agree with you that like, there's not a version of this that they could have done that would have been fully satisfying, but you can just like, agree with me, Rich. I'm just, just, just like, here, just hear me out. Like the mask gets pulled off. It's Shatner. <laughs> and he has his face painted bluish white. <laughs> he looks exactly the same under the mask as the mask. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, how about this? The mask gets pulled off. It's George Takei. (laughs) (laughs) And he says something like utterly George Takei, like, oh my, or something. (laughs) George Takei might be better than your Donald Pleasant. (laughs) (laughs) I'll take that as a compliment. (laughs) Confirmed. (laughs) Yeah, confirmed. Uh, I wish I was trying to think of an actual like Loomis line and and I I didn't have one. Like I want to double back. She gets this moment where he's deliberately getting his mask back on because it seems to really throw him that he has to adjust his mask and put it back. And she's just whimpering up against the wall, covering her face. Like I think if Loomis doesn't intervene, um, she's getting killed here. And I do think it's kind of damning the way it plays out if you're assessing Laurie Strode's final girl cred. But Loomis is there and he shoots him five, six times, whatever it is. You know, Michael goes out over the balcony and into the yard. And I wrote here in my notes that even Loomis is shocked and horrified to see when Michael is gone and apparently got up and disappeared after being shot. But I also noted that there was a steely resolve there. He doesn't lose his composure over it. And tonight when I was looking at that, that photo book, it had the anecdote that Donald Pleasance asked John Carpenter, should I do it shocked or, or like I knew it? And Carpenter says, do it like I knew it. And I think that Pleasance still brings a lot of subtlety to the moment as he as he plays that it is the the personification of you know my heart sank you can see like just the the oh god it's not over it's a really wonderful moment from him uh, performance wise yeah and then in a very black christmas kind of finale michael's heavy breathing accompanies the score in this long closing montage of all the rooms and locations from the film and yeah, the the implication, the statement is that he's still out there, uh, but at least he's not in the attic while a drugged Jamie Lee Curtis sleeps it off. So so there's that. It's still a scary movie. Um, yeah, I want to you know everybody go around the horn. You know, sort of give your give your final thoughts in a second. I, I'll just say 
while it's to me painfully dated in places and it, it, it draws out a thin story to the breaking point at times, I, I do still find a lot to love here. And I've enjoyed, I think our sort of tenor has been fairly critical tonight. Uh, me, you know, not the least of that, but there are so many, like the, the 12 best moments in this film, uh, I think stack up favorably, even if I don't get give this movie the vote, and I'm not necessarily going to do so, I don't know yet, as far as being the best slasher film ever made, but I think the 12 moments of this film stack up favorably to those in any slasher movie ever, if that's the litmus test you want to use. So Vic, we'll start with you. Final thoughts about this film. My final thought is I just want to read a quote from the the essay by Brian Eggert uh, called Halloween, which I highly recommend if anyone's interested looking up because it was very well written and just had a lot of different uh, takes and a lot of insight into the into the film. Uh, but I just there's one quote that I want to read because this for me, we've talked a lot about the ambiguity and stuff. This for me really sums up uh, what I think is is so powerful and kind of timeless about this film. He writes, the movie's elusiveness is what draws us back again and again, unlike later sequels or remakes that attempt to introduce a new marketable wrinkle that provides answers to Michael Myers' backstory and, as a result, demystifies the haunting authority of the original. The power of Halloween resides in Carpenter's original conception of Michael Myers as the shape, a dark and indecipherable force that betrays our understanding of the natural world. That really sums it up for me. Yeah, love that. Absolutely a, a keen insight that crystallized a lot of the power of the film. Carpenter doesn't give a fuck, basically. <laughs> <laughs> Neither does Rob Zombie. <laughs> can, can you imagine if there was only one of these? Like if this was the only one and like how that might change your your perspective on it? overall like would it make this film stronger or weaker i think it could only help (laughs) 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 i think we are bringing a lot of demystification to the table at this point (laughs) having seen all those others i have not seen any of the other ones in this franchise actually i mean I, i felt like i needed to watch the first one before i could watch the other ones and so i didn't do it yet I mean, on one hand, I'd say you're not missing anything, and I'd probably stop there. <laughs> maybe, maybe we only need one hand for this conversation. I mean, actually, I, 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 you have seen Halloween 3, right? I've seen about an hour of Halloween 3. I, I've I mean, not seen the whole thing all the way through. I mean, Halloween 3 is worth, is worth, uh, yeah. worth the trip. As far as I'm concerned, um, and it, it it won't demystify Michael Myers, I can tell you that. <laughs> right, that one's completely out of the uh, yeah. <laughs> the loop, I guess. <laughs> no, this may be like cyclical to how we sort of open this film, in that the best movies for me like conjure up a utterly unforgettable sense of time, and place and mood. And there's another type of storytelling that 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 sort of like infects you with, you know, very indelible like characters that stick with you forever, and you know, and then there and then there are stories you can never forget. Well, this is you know, you can only have two out of three. So <laughs> this one like does not have the the story that you can't forget. 
But those other two things, like, it just knocks out of the park. There's a reason why this thing is a fixture, and that is that it is, it's a bit of, like, tonal alchemy, as far as I'm concerned, um, in terms of capturing the, the spirit of, of the, the season, for, for which it is, like, so appropriately named, and, and as we've discussed, like, actually is, like, aptly married to its, its slasher holiday, unlike so many of the other slasher films. It's lost impact with time, but like it's also been around a a very long time, and I think that all those aspects are far less forgettable than many of the other contenders, even in the top four. Ooh, all right. Well, that's a statement we'll revisit soon enough. You guys have really um, turned around some of the ways I look at this movie, and uh, and that's great. Um, so I do want to revise my earlier view, my starting view, that this movie isn't quite focused enough. Um, it, it isn't, but so what is my conclusion at this point on a lot of those points. Um, a lot of that is just sort of your low-budget 1970s snafu, which I love. I love that about those movies. Um, but it's done so well in this movie that the the world of the movie is pared down to its essentials. You've got teens and you've got pure evil. And it's so lean that it gives you just enough to imagine what might fill in the blank spots that aren't quite filled in, and that it operates the way that fairy tales and mythology do. So you understand a lot more than you are ever told directly, and that works some real primal nerves. So I, I wish I had seen this movie at 14, because I think I missed out on its full impact by seeing it as an adult who brings like a more critical eye to it and not someone who just was going to sit there and be terrified in the dark. Stephen King said in Dance Macabre uh, something to the effect of the idea that the monster is behind the door is always going to be far more terrifying than opening the door and seeing the monster. And in some way, yeah, I think that's kind of where we're all landing, that the fact that you can read into Michael Myers in all of these ways, this tabula rasa quality of him is part of the enduring power and something that admittedly is lost because we, most of us have seen the later films uh, where they color in uh, between all the lines and they give him more backstory than you could ever want. So uh, yeah, that's a, that's a tribute to the enduring power just of implication and the unknown. And and the movie has a lot of other virtues as well, which I, I hope you still got from this conversation. It's been really fun talking about it. I, I know we all debated how much coverage to give this film since we'd done ad nauseum studies of the Halloween franchise and this movie specifically in detail. But I, I'm ultimately glad that that we we look, came back to it. And it's a fitting end to our study of, of slasher films. It probably we couldn't have picked a better one to end with. So I really enjoyed it. Thank you guys so much for coming along on this ride um i've enjoyed this four-way conversation very much luke thank you for jumping on board we've appreciated your insights your new voice here thanks a lot buddy and hopefully we'll uh, we'll have you back on in the future at some point and this is a lot of fun thanks for having me on all right everybody take care i don't have any long spiel about uh what to do and not do one one killers are after you but uh We'll be back soon enough for the awards, 
which is always something I think any longtime listener will look forward to as we look at the whole scope of this journey we've been on, all the ups and downs, and that's one of our, always our funniest episodes as we get into the absurdities of the films and, of course, the highlights. That's going to be great. And, <laughs> by the way, we'll decide what is the greatest slasher film of all time. Adios. <laughs>